Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, so tonight we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. And I'm going to make it through the entire chapter if you can believe that. Yeah, I know you're shaking your heads no, but it is a high probability tonight that I'm going to do that. Uh, The title of this one is The Handwriting on the Wall, uh, because we're going to get to that section in Daniel chapter 5. But as we begin, um, this chapter, chapter 5, The Handwriting on the Wall chapter, this is where now, do you remember the the first dream that... um, Nebuchadnezzar has and the dream is about the statue the head of gold remember that one the chest and the arms of silver and that's the Medo-Persian Empire well now in Daniel 5 with what's going to happen here this is the moment in time now when the kingdoms transfer when the Babylonian kingdom empire goes down and the Medo-Persian Empire now comes into power and they conquer the Babylonian Empire. This is the moment in time, Daniel chapter 5, and we'll get to, we'll explain how that all happens at the very, very end. So at the time uh, of the conquering of Babylon, the ruler is a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Now, what I love about that is that for years and years, as they typically do, they could not find the existence of a Belshazzar. And so therefore, they would say, it's a myth, and the Bible's a myth, and therefore it's just not true. And then, of course, all of a sudden, archaeologists dig something up, and they find something. And they found this in 1854, they found uh, this, um, th- this guy by the name of King Nab- Nabonidus, yeah, Nabonidus, and you'll hear more about him as we go along. In 550 BC, which is almost, what, 2,600 years ago, he places these four cylinders in Ur, Ur is Ur the Chaldees, and in one of those cylinders, you find Nabonidus, the king, and he talks about his son, and his son's name is Belshazzar. And then we found out there that Belshazzar actually did exist, once again, proving that the Bible is absolutely true historically. It's a, it's a book that you can count on. Now, the question, though, I would ask once I heard that is, is that why isn't Nabonidus, therefore, the king? Why does it mention, as we'll see in a second, Belshazzar? Why is it Nabonidus instead of Belshazzar? Well, they found another text, a cuneiform text, and they found that uh, in this text it says that Nabonidus, the king of Babylon, once he was king, he would leave on these long journeys, you know, expanding the kingdom, and he left his son Belshazzar in charge. And so that's why uh, we, we know now that's why Belshazzar is in charge. But here's the cool thing about that. If you look at, um, look at verse 7 in chapter 5, uh, look at the very, very end. This is where, and we'll get there when we get there, but at the very end it says, and have authority as what ruler in the kingdom? It's the third ruler. So Belshazzar is going to give authority to Daniel or anybody who can interpret this thing, handwriting on the wall, to the third ruler. Now that makes perfect sense because Nabonidus is the first ruler at the time. 
Belshazzar, the son, is the second ruler. Nabonidus is gone, son's in charge, second ruler. And Nabonidus is going to give power to anybody who can interpret the writing on the wall, which would make it the third ruler. And so that fits perfectly with everything also. And so now we, and so as we move on, we must ask ourselves the question, uh, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Where's he at? Because we've been reading about Nebuchadnezzar all this time, right? And now we're not going to read about him. Well, he died around 562 B.C. His son, check out his son's name. His son took over, and his son's name was Evil Merodach. Evil, first name, like Evil Knievel, but Evil Merodach. So this guy reigns two years. Evil's brother uh, killed, I'm sorry, brother-in-law has him assassinated, and, and therefore he ascends to the throne. This brother-in-law dies so many years later. This brother-in-law's son takes over. A few months go by, and Nabonidus comes along in a coup and murders this son. And so he goes off, as he rules Babylon, Nabonidus, like we said before, he goes off expanding the kingdom, building, I think, temples also. And he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge. So now that you got a history lesson that you didn't want... But I feel better about my life, you know, for saying that. Now we can move on in this whole story. You guys ready? So Belshazzar's the guy in charge. Here we go. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2 say, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now, bullet point in your notes if you're taking notes. With a hurricane brewing outside, Belshazzar throws a party inside. With a hurricane brewing outside, Belshazzar throws a party inside. Now, what you need to understand at this moment, and we've talked about it before, is in this big party that he's throwing, outside the walls of Babylon, there is a massive army, and it's the Medo-Persian army. They're outside, and they want to conquer. So you ask yourself the question, if this massive army is out there and wanting to conquer Babylon, why is he so lackadaisical? Why is he throwing a big party for a thousand of his cronies and bringing all the wine and everything else? Why is he doing something like that? Well, you got to remember how big Babylon, this city was. You got to remember that the walls are extremely high. I mean, they're massively high. And they're extremely thick. I mean, they're really thick. And you've got to remember that they have stored in this city 20 years worth of food in this massive city. And they have an unending source of water supply. And it's the river. What river is it again? The Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River, the city is a big square basically, the Euphrates River would run underneath the wall into the city and they had water, probably run on the way out on the other side, but it was rushed so hard that you could not enter the city. If you tried to get in the city, you would die. You would drown in this water. So, this guy, Belshazzar, he sits there and thinks, well, you know what? They can't, there's nothing they can do. They can have all the soldiers they want outside. Let's just have a big party 
and show that we're not worried one bit about the Medo-Persian army right outside the walls. And so that's what he does. So there's this hurricane brewing outside, and he's inside, and he's throwing one big party. And he's not worried one bit about it, but he should be, huh? Now, second bullet point, and that's this, the sin. What is the sin? Using holy vessels for unholy uses. He is now using holy vessels for unholy uses. Now, did you notice in verse 2, look back at it very briefly. In verse 2, it says, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in in Jerusalem. So now he's getting really, really arrogant. And he thinks the city cannot fall. So he says, you know what? Let's bring out those vessels, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar had brought when he raided and sieged Jerusalem and he conquered the city and he went into the temple and he brought the vessels of God from the holy temple and he brought them and he put them in his own museum. And we found that in chapter one when we first started the book. Now, he says, bring them here. We're going to eat off God's holy temples and we're going to drink out of God's holy temples and so we made a statement way back in chapter 1, and that was this, that they, re they relativized the absolute. They made absolute, God is absolute, is he not? But they relativized him. They made him like common. They made him like anything else. So when they bring out the vessels of God, they make the vessels of God which are holy, they use them for very common purposes. And that's a big mistake on his part. And that's his big sin. The sin of this man is, I'm going to use what is holy for unholy purposes. And we do that a lot in our own personal lives, don't we? We do the same things, and we got to be careful with stuff like that. Now, the third bullet point is this. Knowledge equals responsibility. And knowledge always equals responsibility. So here we find this guy, and he's using the vessels of God. Now, does he know not to use the vessels? Does he know these things are of God? And the answer is, yeah. Does he know that there's a true living God? Yeah. How would this guy know that there really is a God, the God in heaven? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, whom we're going to find out is his grandfather, because Nebuchadnezzar, remember, I think it was last week or the week before, how we saw Nebuchadnezzar tells about his journey to become a person who believes in Yahweh God. Remember that one? He told the whole story. So you know this guy has to know. And later on, we'll see as we go along, where Daniel himself is going to tell Belshazzar, you knew. You knew what you were doing. You knew. And knowledge equals responsibility. But he rejects that, and he blasphemes. Now, <clears throat> let's look at a couple of verses. Keep your marker right here. And let's go over to James chapter 4 to kind of substantiate the point of knowledge equals responsibility. In James chapter 4... Uh, when you're there, say, I'm there. Way to the right. I'm there. Okay. James chapter 4 and verse 17, and it says this. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? It's sin. So if I know the right thing to do and I do not do the right thing, therefore it is, it is sin. So knowledge equals responsibility. Now, let me show you another thing where Jesus is now in this big debate with the, with the it's in your note, John chapter 9. Turn to John 9, 
or Jesus going back and forth with the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and, and which he typically is. They're always trying to get him on something. But John 9, now this is the end of the event where Jesus heals the blind man. Remember the blind man? And so at the end of it, they're going back and forth. He's going back and forth with the Pharisees. Now watch this in verse 39, 40, and 41. Keeping the idea of knowledge equals responsibility. That's right. Look at 39. It says, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? They sh- How many know don't tell that, something like that to Jesus? Because you're going to get a mouthful now. And he says to them, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. In other words, because you say you see, because you say you understand, because you say you have knowledge, therefore knowledge equals responsibility, Therefore, your sin remains. And let's just be clear. Because most of us, when we think of sin, we think of doing things that we shouldn't do. Correct? But sin is also the flip side. That, that's a sin of commission. Sin is a flip side, too. Is There's a sin of omission. Where the scriptures say to do something, live a certain way, and we're just not going to do that. That's a sin of omission. I'm omitting that. So there are sins of omission, and there are sins of commission. And they're both uh, equally bad, okay? So they're bad. Now, let's go back to Daniel chapter 5. Let's dig, let's follow this story because it's going to get wild in a second. Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels because he's asking for the vessels, remember? Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple uh, house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. So everybody's drinking from God's holy vessels. Verse 4. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So now they bring everything out and they're drinking from Yahweh's vessels. But who are they praising as they drink from Yahweh's vessels? These, all these false gods, they're praising that. Specifically, did you notice what gods they're praising? Gold, silver, bronze, iron. What does that remind you of? The statue way back when. Remember the dream? The head of gold, chest and arms of silver, keeps going bronze, then the iron. It's almost like they're praising themselves. Man is glorifying himself. Those are the picture of the empires right there. It's something you can think on, uh, on your own and just, and just take it the way you want to. Now, here's the big issue, and this is the big issue with Belshazzar of what his big sin is. Belshazzar has now, by taking the vessels, and everybody's drinking from anybody, just go ahead, has made God come. He's made God a zero in his life. Is it dangerous to make God a zero? You better believe it's dangerous to make God a zero. That's a really, really bad thing that he's doing right now. Now, verse 5 and verse 6 says this. Here it comes. Suddenly, the fingers of a man a man's hand, emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack 
and his knees began knocking together. You think he's a little scared? Yeah, you know, every time I read this, and this is just the way my crazy movie mind thinks, because everything has now changed. Anyone ever seen Back to the Future? Yeah, how many read? I just got to know so I know, okay. Remember that scene where, where, where um, George McFly is going to go ask Lorraine out on a date when he says, you are my density? Remember that one? Okay, remember they go in, it's in the malt shop. How many remember malt shops in the 50s? Because I don't, I was too young. No, I remember they were on the corner and stuff like that. But they go in the malt shop and remember the jukebox is playing and everybody's having a good time and, and, and George McFly is going to go ask Lorraine. Remember, it's a really fun time, right? And then who walks in? Biff with his guys, right? And remember the first thing that Biff walks in, what do they do? They pull the cord from the jukebox. And remember what the sound of the music was? And you know, like, everything's been lit out of the room. And he goes, McFly, I thought I told you never to come in. And now you know it's bad, huh? It's really bad. And McFly's like, oh, oh, uh, a Biff. He was going to cost you. Now, that scene, I always think of it like it lets the air out of the room. That is nothing compared to what's happening here. Because this festive feast, it's now turning like the Tower of Terror. He is now just seeing, they're all drinking, having a great time, Persian army outside, no problem, and a hand appears on the wall. Everybody sees it. There's a lampstand here. You see the back of the hand, and it begins to write on the wall right there, and, everybody, and everything stops. Here's what's fascinating to me. Does the king's face lose color? What happens to his hip joints? What happens to his knees? Does he look bad or what? Yeah, now think about that. Now think of this because it's so cool. In chapter 1, Daniel and the guy said, we're not eating off God's stuff. And after 10 days, what were they? Cooler, fatter, stronger. They look really good. This guy says, we're going to eat off God's stuff and make God common. How does he look? He looks bad. What a contrast, huh? I love the contrast in Scripture that it shows you that if you follow God, do what's right, you will live this better life. But if you don't, here's what it's going to look like, guys. Here's what it's going to lead to. No matter how much we think, it's not going to happen. I love that contrast in the story. Now, <clears throat> Let me see where I'm at because I, I, I got ahead of myself there, I think. Now, <clears throat> here's the most terrifying part. He's, he's um, eating and drinking off God's stuff. He doesn't believe in God. He's praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron. So he doesn't believe in Yahweh. But now what happens? Do you think he now he believes there's this God Yahweh? Yeah. All of a sudden, he knows there's this God that he didn't believe in, and now his whole life is, it's, it's like bad. It's like bad. So let's see what he does, because this is all turned on him. Verse 7 and 8. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as, say it again, what ruler? Third, Third ruler, we know why now, in the kingdom. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. He brings in all the smart guys, right? We've seen the other kings do this before, right? Brings them all in and they can't tell them what it means whatsoever. Bullet point in your notes. Here we go. Neither the light of the lamp, remember there's a lamp 
giving light to the wall there, nor the light of their intellects enable them to see what the inscription meant. They have regular light in the room, a lamp. They have the light of their enlightened intellect, but they don't know what that thing means, right? Now think about that right there. We would say it like this. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2 around verse 14. The natural man does not. Remember when Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he's telling Nicodemus, you must be born again the whole shot. And Nicodemus says, but how can these things be? Remember that? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? Yeah, meaning the main teacher. And you don't understand these things? He says, if I told you earthly things, natural things, and you don't get it, how can I tell you heavenly things? He's saying the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. In the next chapter, John 4, the woman at the well, remember her? Remember he's talking about water, and she thinks he's talking about physical water, right? And she don't get it. She doesn't understand he's talking about spiritual life and spiritual water because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Bullet point, second bullet point. Here's another thing about this right here. There is a realm beyond this realm. Amen? There's a realm beyond this realm. And in John 3 with Nicodemus again, Nicodemus is not getting it, and Jesus tells him, look, no one has ascended into heaven but he himself, Jesus, who descended from heaven. In other words, there's a realm beyond this realm, is what Jesus was telling him. There's a realm beyond this realm. And now Belshazzar knows, guess what? There's a realm beyond this realm. Now, let's read on. Verse 9. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the... I'm sorry. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. You think? His face grew even paler. I mean, if he already lost all color in his face, it's worse now. And his nobles were perplexed. So is everybody kind of going crazy now? Yeah, he's looking even worse. So what happens? The queen has to intervene because this is not going well, guys. Look at verse 10, 10, 11, and 12. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face pale. Really? Verse 11, she goes, There's a man in your kingdom whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Is there only one God? Yeah. yeah. So she, her, always remember, their theology's off, right? She's a polytheistic person. Theology's off. But she knows there's something about Daniel, huh? There's this something spiritual. God lives in this guy. In the, she goes on, and in the days of your father, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, but means grandfather, that's just the way they wrote. If someone ever tries an opinion and say, well, he wasn't his father, he was his grandfather, it's just the way they would write. If you were the ancestor, you were, a, you were the father. They didn't write it like, oh, it's your grandfather. Okay, so if anybody ever asks you stuff like that. Now, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, who is really his grandfather, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Verse 12, this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight 
Interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel, and by the way, remember he was brought there and re-educated and given a new name. Remember that in chapter 1? He was changed his name, they changed it to Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. All right. She comes in. She says, don't panic. Don't panic. Because she's seen her, her, her husband there, he's having a personality crisis, right? And everybody's dancing to all freak out, right? It's like, they're just going crazy, right? And it's panic in the streets. I thought I'd just say that so you remember that song. Yeah. So the queen reminds him, she goes, there's a guy named Daniel. What does that tell you about the king and what he thinks or his relationship with Daniel? He doesn't have any. He doesn't have any. It's like, there's this guy named Daniel. Who? It's almost like, he goes, it's almost like, let me assume, that it's like, well, he's a Yahweh believer in, and I'm not going down that road because I believe in all these gods that I'm worshiping, gold, silver, this and that. She goes, there's a guy named Daniel whom you don't really understand and know, but we have him here. Now, sidebar, look back at verse 11. Remember that Daniel is the chief of the magicians, or we know them as the Magi. Remember what we said before about that? He's the Rob Mog. He's the leader of the Magi. And not to go back into it, that's why we believe, I believe, that's how the Magi knew uh, 500 and some years later to follow a star that a Messiah would be born in the area around Jerusalem, Bethlehem. And that's why they follow the star because Daniel passed the information 500 and some years before as the chief Rob Mog and they passed it down and passed it down and passed it down. We showed you in Numbers 24, 17, I think it is. We showed you how to correlate with Balaam uh, and, and that's how they knew follow this this, this star, this thing in the sky, because they were also astronomers. So that's how it all connects together right there. And we already went over that, I think, a couple, maybe three, four weeks ago. Now, here we go, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Guys, think of what he just did. Are you one of the exiles my dad brought? In other words, are you one of the slaves my dad's brought? Is it almost like a put down, huh? Yeah. Like, almost like he doesn't want him there. Are you one of these guys? He has no idea, really, what this Daniel and what God does like. Question. About how old is Daniel now? Guys, guys, this is 539 B.C. He was brought there as a teenager in 605 B.C. He has been there now 61, 66 years. If he was brought anywhere from 15 years old to 17 years old, he's about at least 80, 81 to 83 years of age. He has been there a long, long time. And after all these years, he is still recognized as somebody that you want to talk to, as somebody that, that, that can give you wise counsel. Look, did you... Bullet point. Let me get the bullet point. Daniel has walked a consistent, unwavering, uncompromising walk of faith. Has he not? 80 years. 80 years old. And did you, look, remember everything we just read about him? Remember her testimony about him? 80 years. And look at all the great things said about him. Don't you want people to say that at your funeral? I do. And you better say that at my funeral. No. <laughs> but I do. I want all these things that, now, 
I, I, I've probably done, I, I'm sure I'm nearing 200 funerals in my life that I've performed. And um, I probably do probably at least 10 a year, something like that, maybe 12, something like that. One of the hardest things at a funeral. And you're there, it's a Christian person. You all knew they were a Christian person, all this. And one of the hardest things is when people start going up and testifying about them. And people come up and start telling you the flip side of their life. And you weren't bargaining for this. And they come and tell you all the things that that person was into. They're not doing it mean. They were just their friend who wasn't Christian. And now they're sharing all the sins they were into currently. And you just stand up there. I stand up there. And you're thinking, on the one side, you're worshiping God. On the other side, you're living like this. The testimony's bad. The testimony's bad. Look, when we die, guys, and it's coming for all of us, we all want people to go up there and share the truth, but how we lived a consistent, unwavering, holy, walk of faith. Right? That's what we want. We don't want a bad testimony. Here's, here's Daniel, 80 years old, 81 years old, and they can't find anything wrong with this guy. There's nothing bad. The testimony is, look at the way he lived, and this is why you want to bring him in here and talk to this guy, because he can help, right? Now watch verse 14. Let's read on. Now I have heard about you, so he's talking to Daniel. Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. Verse 16. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Is he given Daniel a lot if he can interpret it? Yeah. Watch what Daniel says. Daniel answered and said before the, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. In other words, like the old saying, I don't need no stinking badges. Remember that right there? I don't need that stuff, okay? You keep it for yourself, but I will give you the interpretation. Now, here's something that I think you have to think about, is that all of his, all of Belshazzar's main guys, they can't read the interpretation, they can't understand what it says, right? It's kind of weird. Because, and I'm just going to guess here, I'm going to assume, it's got to be in the Chaldean language, the Babylonian language, because otherwise, God isn't, God's trying to get a message to him, right? And so, it's got to be in that language. They can't read it. So here comes Daniel, and Daniel, back up now, chapter 1, 
Daniel's deported there. And what did Daniel have to learn when he was first brought there in chapter 1? The, the language. He is re-educated and they taught him the language. He had to learn the language of the Chaldeans. And so now we find, that was his teenage years, and now we find at around age 80, 81, 82, 83, everything comes together. This moment in time, he knows the language. He's able to interpret because God has given him that ability. And so now he's here for such a time as this moment. Amen? He's here and he's able to give the interpretation where there will be a transfer of kingdoms where this Medo-Persian kingdom outside the walls is going to conquer and going to take over Babylon. Here he is in this moment. And every one of us in this room, every follower of Christ, every one of us, if we do the right things and we keep the fellowship and we don't compromise our lives and we don't walk away from God and we don't go do all... Man, we have these moments in life. Everyone does. Everyone. There's these, such a time as this moment where you now have been matured and grown where you are thrust by God, called by others in this moment that you are ready for. Any amens? It's a big deal, guys. It's a big deal. Because he went through all this, learned the language for this moment. The one thing I like to tell people is, it's an old John Wooden quote of UCLA. He says, when the window of opportunity opens, it's too late to prepare. It's too late to prepare. You should have been preparing way before that. Because that window's going to open how many years down the road. You're preparing for the moment. God says, now I'm going to pour it out on you. Now you're going to be needed. But if you're not preparing, God's going to get somebody else. Because remember Mordecai, the uncle of, of, of Esther in the, in the book of Esther, for such a time as this? She says, ah, he goes, look, if, if, if you're not going to be used by God, then God's going to use somebody else. But God's going to do it. He's going to do it through somebody. He might as well do it through you. So always be in preparation for that moment in your life. Amen? Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verse 18 to 31, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to make comments as I go, and then I'm going to try to tie it all together, okay? That's when you thought I couldn't finish the book and you were questioning it, right? So this is how I'm going to finish. I'm sorry, finish the chapter. Verse 18. Here comes the interpreter. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, who's really his grandfather. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Nice guy, huh? And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. What's the key for repeating phrase there? And whomever he wished. He's doing whatever he wants, right? Okay, think, hold that thought. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up, oh, arrogance, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. Oh, remember he's standing out there saying, look at Babylon, which I have built for my glory. Remember that one? Yes. Okay. He was deposed. In other words, moved from his position, from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. Ah, oh, I want you to think about that, guys. Just, here's just a thought on those verses. It says, uh, 
whomever you wish, and whomever you wish, whatever, he did this, and then all of a sudden, well, you're arrogant, and then we're going to remove you from position. What does that remind you of? Lucifer says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And so it says, arrogance, sin was found in his heart, and he was removed from his position, and we know him as Satan, right? And so you see this whole parallel right there, and that could parallel anybody's life that thinks, I'm going to run my own life, I'm the one who accomplished it. I don't need anybody else, especially when a person knows God. And then we see the end, destruction of it all. Now, verse 21. Is it 21? Yeah. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. And he was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. And then he sets it over whomever he wishes. In other words, I sent him out there. He wouldn't listen. He's arrogant. I gave him the warning. And he went out there, act like crazy man, until, until you repent. How many have ever repented and you just came to your senses besides me? Right? And you come to your senses. It's like, thank you, Jesus. You gave me another chance. Now, verse, what verse am I? 22? Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, uh-oh, even though you what? You knew all this. There it is. Knowledge equals what? Response. You knew. Your grandfather told you. Your grandfather told you that there's a true God. There's an only one God. Your grandfather gave testimony. It's written. It's in this book. You knew. Now, verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord and heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. Now he finds out his sin. Now he finds out you brought God's holy vessels, God's vessels. You brought them in to your big drinking party and you're drinking and eating off these vessels. And that's, what you're, that's your sin. Before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of, here we go, silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Now, I want you to think about that. He's telling him this. You worship. You, first off, you brought the vessels in of God, making God zero, making God common, but you worship the God of gold, silver, bronze. Those are idols, right? So in other words, has he violated the commands of God? You shall have no other gods be for me. He violated it, right? Oh, that's a big, big deal. Now, God, just a sidebar, God gave him the Ten Commandments. How did God give the Ten Commandments in the first place? He wrote with his what? His finger. What is God doing now? He's writing with his finger again. Will God write in the future in the Gospels? With his finger? Yeah, the adulterous woman. Remember they bring her, they throw her down? Remember that? And Jesus kneels down, writes on the ground. The finger of God writes again. So the finger of God writes the Ten Commandments. Then the finger of God writes here, saying you're going to be judged. And then the finger of God writes forgiveness and mercy to, to the woman, etc. The whole shot. So the finger of God is writing. Verse 20, 24. And here's the whole point. You make God a zero. Now God's going to make you a zero. That's a scary thought. 
Verse 24. Now this is the inscription. Here he comes. Here's what it is, Belshazzar. This is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tickle, uparsen. If you saw the movie Nefarious, you heard that. And if you go see the movie, stay to the very end, after all the credits, there's something at the end that I didn't know the first time I saw it. He goes, that's the inscription. Read on. This is the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient, wanting. Perez, part of Upharsin. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Whoa. You've been weighed. You've been measured. You've been found wanting. And your kingdom will now be divided and taken and overthrown. We, we know that phrase. Huh? You've been weighed. You've been measured. You've been found. That's where they take this from. And that's what he tells him. He says, your kingdom of Babylon is ending now. The fulfillment, the first part of a fulfillment of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar of the statue. Your kingdom is ending now. Now verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. What did Daniel say? That he wanted that stuff or not want that stuff? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Why is Belshazzar doing this? Daniel don't want it. But let me tell you what I think. I think that Belshazzar has really no understanding or concept that he only has hours to live. He only has hours before the kingdom goes down. There's literally just hours left in his life. So he's going on with business as usual as if, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. When in fact, it really is going to happen. Guys, at this moment, he only has hours to live. In a matter of hours, Babylon will fall. Now, I remember, I remember um, back in 08, 09, remember the, the crash of 08, 09? People were freaking out everywhere. And it, it, it was like, boom, right? When it finally hit. And I remember thinking this, and I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I remember thinking, I even said it on a Sunday. In Revelation chapter 18, there's something called commercial Babylon. There's spiritual Babylon, which is the spiritual, would be the, say, the, the church control. One church during the great seven-year tribulation, it's not a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's run by the Antichrist, run by the false prophet. Um, but there's this commercial Babylon, this, it, there's no name of this, but it's an empire, it's something. And it says, in one day things go bad, and then in one hour, specifically, the economy of whatever nation that is crashes, just crashes to the point. And if you read the description, you're thinking, 
The only nation I think that possibly could be is the United States. I don't know who else it could be. Because all the cargo ships that says they're out at, they stay out at sea and they're not coming in because nobody's buying the goods anymore from this nation they were bringing it to. And all these places are weeping who used to just export their stuff to this big, powerful nation. But this nation goes down economically in an hour. And it seems like that's not possible. But then I read like this. And the heat goes down in a matter of hours. Now, let's be honest about all that. You'll find out in a few moments that they've been doing stuff outside the walls that's been building up to this moment. And the United States, we're doing stuff basically that are building up to a possible moment. And I don't want it to collapse. I got grandkids, man, where it could just collapse. See, it's the morality of a nation. It's the morality of a nation. And the United States has gone off the rails on its immorality. And, we got, and it's like, we've got to pray for our nation. We've got to pray for this country. Because it's, whoever that is in Revelation, it goes down in an hour. Now, that can't be stopped. But, you know, pray, pray for the country. Now, let me close it with a couple things. Um, first off, if you noticed... Um, Belshazzar and the gang, they're calling Daniel, they're not calling him Belteshazzar, the name he was changed to. They're calling him what? Daniel. Daniel literally means God is my judge. And it's like they're saying, I'm under the judgment of God now. God is judging me for taking those vessels, for making God a zero, for living the way I want to, and thinking I can just flaunt my sin in God's face and get away with it. And now it's come to an end. Daniel, God is my judge. Now let's read verse 30, 31, and I'll go over again what happened, which we talked about about two months ago, I think, or a month and a half ago. Notice this verse 30. That same night, remember I said he has hours to live, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius, the Mede, received the, received the kingdom at about age 62. Now, we are fortunate that historians tell us what exactly happened. Herodotus is one of them. And so, as they were outside the walls, and Belshazzar's inside, they're having a big party thing, and nothing going to happen to me. And then the writing appears on the wall. The Medo-Persian Empire, outside the walls, this massive army... They've been doing something. They've been busy. Way upstream, the Euphrates River, remember, runs underneath the city, but that you can't go through it. You die, you'll drown in there. They've been building kind of a big reservoir. And at a certain point, this canal they connected the reservoir from the Euphrates, they open it up. And the water from the Euphrates gets diverted into that big reservoir canal, way upstream. When it does, as it comes down towards Babylon, the water what? It recedes. And once it recedes, we know from history that the Medo-Persian soldiers, they come underneath through the water tunnel there because the water has receded. And they take the city. And they slay Belshazzar. 
And I've heard some people say that because the city's so big that it took three days for really the whole city to finally realize that they were even conquered. They didn't even know. They didn't know. But they take Belshazzar, just like the prophecy. You've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. Your kingdom's divided. The Medo-Persian Empire. And so now in this moment, October 12, 539 B.C., historical fact, the statue goes from gold to silver. The chest and the arms. The Medo-Persian Empire. And it transfers. Belshazzar is killed. And now you have a new kingdom, a new empire in place. Because he took the vessels of God and he made them common. He made them like nothing. He made God a zero, so God made him a zero. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these, um, this history example, God, is a great lesson and a, it's a sobering warning to us on how to live our life. This guy just snubbed in the face of God. He thought, I can't be taken down. This city cannot go down. But anything can go down. And so God, we just pray, God, let's, we, we just pray for our nation, the United States. Lord, that we would turn back to you. That people, I'm talking about individual people by the tens of millions would turn back to you, God would become followers of Christ. And they'd raise up a standard of biblical, traditional values that would guide our nation again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that even though sin does abound, so much more disgrace abound. Thank you, God, that even when it looks like we're losing, no, we win. We know the end of the book. We win. So we thank you for that, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.